Welcome back to the podcast. This week you get just me yet again. Um, I'm kind of trying to alternate, if you will, between having guests and interviewing them and then giving you guys just kind of episodes interspersed with me teaching on the topics that I am so passionate about. I have found that whenever I have gone to listen to somebody's podcasts, a lot of times it's the, the person whose podcast it is that I want to hear from. And then what I end up finding is so often they're all of their podcasts are interviews with other people and I'm not getting a chance to really hear from them. So hence why we're kind of doing it this way where we have an every other week podcast with me and then interview with somebody that I love and admire. So this week we're going to talk about my sobriety and I can tell you that I've been sitting here a little bit paralyzed um, with just pushing the record button I have definitely shared my story of sobriety, gosh, it seems like I'm sure dozens and dozens of times over the years, but I haven't quite done it on this platform. And so there's some vulnerability coming up. There's some uncomfortability coming up. But let's just dig in because I know one thing that um, sharing my story is going to create a ripple effect and, and hopefully just open up the conversation, right? Um, part of sharing my story, I, I just want to take you back a little bit. You know, I got, I'll take you all the way back in a second, but I got sober 23 years ago, if you can believe it. I think it's been 23 years. It was January 2nd, 1999 when I was living in California. And, um, what I remember is I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where I live now when I had, gosh, a few years of sobriety under my belt. I'm really bad at remembering like numbers of years or what year it was. I've never been good at that. Um, but I had, I want to say four or five years of sobriety at that point. And having gotten sober in California, half the population sober, it seems like I can remember getting sober and finding in San Diego that there were 700 meetings a week in the San Diego area and just being like blown away. I remember also going to very early, like literally my first week of sobriety, somebody saying, you should go to the young people's meeting on Friday night in PB Pacific beach. And I was like, what is the, what, what would be happening? Like, what do you mean young people's meeting? And, um, I remember walking into that meeting on a Friday night and being floored, just like couldn't even comprehend that there were literally hundreds of people probably between the ages of preteens, you know, I'm sure there was people even like 12, 13 years old in there up to the age of like 21, hundreds in this little tiny town of Pacific Beach, California. And so I went, I, I came from a place of getting sober in Cali where it's like super cool and super respected and super common to moving to the Bible Belt where people still will say things like, you know, she's an alcoholic or we don't need to talk about that or bless her. So I, I have this guilt that I actually carry. I mean, I've worked through it. Don't worry. But I do look back and I have regret. I have regret because when I moved to Charleston, South Carolina at about age 25, 
I got really quiet really quick about my sobriety. And there were people that knew me for decades that had no idea I was sober because I was too, um, I was just too scared to share it. It was, I mean, hello, it's the South. People (laughs) seem to be somewhat judgmental here Um, and not very open and accepting of all of our differences. And uh, I regret that because I really feel like I could have been a voice for change. I really, really feel like had I been loud and proud about my sobriety at such a young age, I could have done a lot to change the face of the stigma of alcoholism and addiction. When I got sober um, and started going to meetings, or when I started going to meetings in Charleston, as soon as I arrived, there were almost no young people in in 12-step meetings. And that's changed radically over the last 15 years, thank goodness. But um, it certainly wasn't the fact and, and the way when I got here. So I'm going to just take you back. And I started out with that story because I'm sitting here feeling like, oh my gosh, this is kind of hard to share my story. But this is what needs to happen in the world, right? Like we all need to be a little bit more or a lot more transparent with our stories. Um, and that's one of the things I love so much about living in California was just the level of authenticity. And it's funny because people think the opposite of California, but I saw this radical level of authenticity and transparency when I lived out there. And, um, it was such a freeing thing to be around, you know, when you, when you're surrounded by that, it just gives you freedom to, to do the same. And anyway, let's, let's go back. I'm going to just kind of tell you like what happened with my alcoholism and my sobriety. And I'm going to try to kind of teach a little bit along the way. Um, I've worked in recovery now for 23 years, so I I do know a lot about it. I've walked through it with my family. Um, A lot of you probably know that I lost my sister to addiction. And so I'm well-versed in in all of it. And I definitely rode the elevator all the way down to the bottom, as they say in 12-step meetings. Um, But you don't have to, is the other thing that I found. You don't have to take the elevator to the bottom floor. So let me go back and just give you kind of the backstory. I grew up in a big old Irish Catholic family in Maryland. I was the youngest. I was the baby of six kids. No better place to be. And um, it was just that big Catholic Irish alcoholic, Catholic Irish alcoholic family, right? I remember somebody saying one time like... um, Oh, the CIA, Catholic Irish alcoholic. And I was like, hmm, yes, the CIA. I grew up in the CIA. But I didn't have any alcoholism front and center, like in my immediate family. Like there were uncles and aunts and things like that that were, um, you know, alcoholic. And that's why we didn't see them. And we knew that very, very much as children. We were talked, you know, our, our parents told us about that. But that was kind of the extent of it. Like you know, it's in your family, it's in your blood, you got to be careful, but it wasn't in my immediate family. In fact, my older brothers, it's a whole long story, but they're 20 years older than me. And they ran hard and fast out back in the, you know, seventies. And I will tell you, I didn't realize this until long into my sobriety, how much that played a part in who I was and who I became, because I grew up loving and, um, I mean, those two big brothers of mine were my world. They hung the moon 
And, you know, my family was a culture of kind of sitting around the dinner table and laughing about these stories of them getting in car wrecks and, you know, getting in trouble and all the drunken tales. And again, it was very different back then. But I sat there as probably a four, five, seven, ten year old and was enamored with the stories. And all I wanted to do was to grow up and be just like them. And so I really had a desire to um, live in the fast lane. And I, I, I didn't come to that realization until my own children started to be enamored with, you know, 20 to 25-year-old athletes or something. I would see my son as a 10-year-old wanting to be like the, the star athlete that he, you know, saw. And I was like, oh. This was what happened to me as a child, except it was with my big brothers who are amazing human beings, um, but they, they partied hard and that's who I wanted to be. I will also tell you that I was born into this world with a very type A perfectionist personality. And I believe that I was born genetically, you know, I have the genetics, I have the gene for alcoholism and addiction. Um, and so those things combined were kind of somewhat of a perfect storm. And before I found alcohol and drugs, I performed at a really high level with every sport that I played, my academics, you know, I went to play the piano and I was great. I, I was really good at that. And I just did everything like with this insatiable appetite, right? Of like more, 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 more. And I got to be the best. I got to be the best. And my parents didn't put that on me, not, not one little bit, but I certainly think society puts that on you. You know, it feels really good to be the best. You get a lot of attention. And there was this like perfectionist angst, right? Like my whole life. And when I first took a drink, when I was 14 years old, I just felt like I could breathe. I felt like I could relax. I felt like I felt ease, you know, I felt relief. And having experienced that, which it, it felt like a pressure valve, right? It felt like I was just this like basketball of like pressure and somebody just like put the air release on it and it was like, Psh, I finally relaxed. And I needed more of that. I needed it and I craved it and I wanted it. And I will say this, and, and this is, I'm going to, you know, maybe ruffle some feathers with some things I say with people in recovery. And, and I don't, I don't know, this is, I'm just going to speak my truth. I hear a lot in 12 step meetings that, you know, I felt, I always felt different. I felt like I didn't fit in. I hear that from everybody. There are certain things I hear in 12 step meetings that I'm like, uh, I don't think any 13 year old feels like they fit in. Like, I think every preteen teen feels like they're not comfortable in their skin. Right. So like us finding alcohol, like that's not an excuse. Um, and I just say that because I think sometimes people identify with that. And I'm like, I think the whole world identifies with that. That's, that's my opinion. Um, so certainly I felt that way, but uh, again, I think we all feel that way. But I, I stepped into that identity, right? That identity that was my big brothers. All of a sudden, I was the party girl. All of a sudden, 
I was living in the fast lane. All of a sudden, life got a whole lot more fun and not so much pressure, right? Um, As I went through high school, you know, I always wanted to become a doctor and I was on that track and I was, I had the grades and I had the, you know, transcripts and all that until, until 12th grade when the, the seesaw started to tip and my drinking started to take priority over my dreams and that's what alcoholism will do. Right. And, um, I started to believe very, I mean, I really believed that I didn't want to pursue these goals anymore. I didn't want to, um, I actually got expelled for drinking at a school dance along with like the high, the homecoming queen and the class president. It was like a, let's make an example out of these kids type of thing, which we totally deserved. Um, but I wasn't able to play my senior year softball, which was like my sport. And, you know, I just, believe that like, whatever, I I don't want to play. Like I, you know, we're just so young and dumb and, and I threw it all away. And, you know, I absolutely could have gone on scholarship with athletics or academics. And, um, I just believed that that wasn't my road at that point. And I could still go to college locally, which actually my parents, that's a whole nother story, but they were like, you have to go locally for a year. There are six kids in our family. (laughs) They were like, you got to prove yourself and then you can go anywhere you want. Um, But by the time I was a senior in high school, I was drinking pretty much daily. It's crazy to me to think about how I got away with that. Um, but alcoholics are very good at covering things up and very manipulative. And, um, and also up until this point, you got to remember that like I was the easiest kid to raise. Like my parents just didn't even have to like raise me. Like I got the grades. I did well in everything. They just didn't have to worry about me until they had to worry about me. And so there wasn't like a ton of parental observation, um, And I was, you know, I was drinking every day. Um, Yeah. And I'm just trying, I'm thinking about where drugs came in and if I even want to share this on this podcast, but I'm, I'm just going to go for it because if it helps somebody, then it's worth it. Um, And I say this, I say this a lot to moms because I think it's so incredibly important who our children are being surrounded with. And we play a part in that. We play a huge role in that, Right. And, um, I can remember having a group of friends in high school that, I mean, they, they weren't terrible by any stretch. They were good people. They partied their asses off, but they were good people. But what I remember, and this is, you know, who you surround yourself with is everything is we were hanging out at one of my girlfriend's houses and I hopped in the back of the car that was like in the driveway and everybody kind of like, (gasps) gasped because they didn't expect me to jump in the car and they were doing drugs. And I remember being completely shell-shocked because I didn't know people that did drugs. I didn't think. Um, I had never seen hard drugs. Like it was completely outside of my scope of normalcy. And moms, listen to this it blew my mind, right? Like I, I was in like almost a panic of just shock of what my so-called friends were doing and I couldn't believe it. And I was mind blown the very next night, 
the very next night, less than 24 hours later, I did drugs for the first time. That's how quickly my mind shifted to, well, if they're doing it and they're normal and they're my friends, then it must not be that big of a deal. That's the power of their peer group. That's the power of our peer group, even as adults. That is radically terrifying, right? Especially as we go about raising our children. Um, And that's why I point that out, because we have to be so incredibly just present to our children and the relationships that they develop. Um, So at this point, then there's other stuff sprinkled in with the alcohol, but alcohol was always the drug of choice, always. And um, I started to get into a lot of trouble. I ended up going to college in my hometown. At this point, I was drinking around the clock 24-7. And um, I, I share this that, you know, in the last couple years of my drinking, and this is by no way, this is, there's no exaggeration here. I was either passed out, I was, or, or I was awake and drinking. I was passed out or I was awake and, and drinking excessively. There was zero sobriety, sober time in there, um, which blows my mind. I don't even know how I was functioning. And I wasn't. I, I wasn't functioning. I was getting in car wrecks. I was, you know, at one point I got cut out of a car. Um, I got put in jail after a DUI. I, of course, weaseled my way out of it because we're really good at that. Um, it was, you know, the, the loss of friendships obviously were happening. And all the meanwhile... My parents were really actually dealing with my sister's alcoholism and I was keeping mine way far away from home, as far away as I could until there were some things that happened that they couldn't deny it anymore, that they not only had one daughter that was an alcoholic and struggling with addiction, but now here's another. Um, At the end of, I want to say it was my junior year, I don't even know if it's my sophomore or junior year, isn't that crazy? Um, But when you're living in a blackout, that's what life feels like they kind of like showed up and took me out of my apartment and brought me home and they were like, you need help. And they brought me to my first 12-step meeting, which, get this, was in the cafeteria of my Catholic school that I had attended for nine years. And I walked down into that basement and I remember thinking, how did life go so wrong? And how did I end up here? And I was... 20, I think at that point I hadn't even turned 21 and I was shaking so much that I couldn't get a cup of coffee or hold a cup of coffee that was offered to me. Everyone in that room was what at least it felt like to me, um, at least 50 and above. I can't imagine. I'm sure there was some people that were under 50, but to me it looked like really 60 and above when you're 20 years old. And I remember my diseased brain because when you're an alcoholic, you have a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. 
If you're looking for some more in-depth training on mindset practices and how to create your vision, how to reverse engineer your goals, how to craft your morning process, all of the things that I'm super passionate about, you guys, the Rise Up course is where it's at. It is literally my lifetime, my mind in a course, every single tip, strategy, and hack that you could possibly ask me about is in this course. So jump into the show notes right below and you'll see the link for the Rise Up course and my Rise Up planner and you guys can rise up with us. I remember thinking, I can still drink for like 40 more years and I can pull it off in the end. I was delusional and sicker than sick and God found his way in. There was a couple sitting next to me, not a couple, just a guy, a man and a woman chatting very candidly and happy. And, you know, I was sitting there like, uh, like, I I mean, it was just a, a bad spot. And what they said, I heard one of them said they were talking about God working in your life. And I, I remember I was sitting there thinking like, he's nowhere in my life, like nowhere to be seen because if he was, I wouldn't be in this place. And what they said next was, you know what? If you're sitting in this room, God is absolutely working in your life. And I heard that. I heard that. And there was a sliver of my soul that believed it. I didn't get sober right away. That was still in Maryland in my hometown. I ran away to California. Um, I felt really drawn to California my whole life, like really drawn, even since I was a little, little, little girl. And I feel like sometimes God has a future plan for us. And I thought I was running away so I could escape the heat. What I didn't realize was I was running away to a place that had 700 12-step meetings and thousands of young people in sobriety. I was running away to what I feel like is the sobriety capital of the world, practically. Um, I didn't get sober right away because that was not why I was going to California. I think I got there probably in May, June, and I continued to party and just just live this existence. I mean, it was it was a it was a blacked out existence at that point. Um, what happened was I was out one night with some friends. We had gone to my friend's apartment first and a girl walked in and she was bubbly and happy and she had a light about her and I will never forget it. And what I remember thinking is I almost was like scowling at her as she walked in that door full of light and full of life because I was literally practically on death's door. And I remember thinking, I used to be friends with people like her. And I didn't even think that I used to be like that. I used to just think I used to be friends with people like that. And we went out. And I remember sitting at the bar, somebody was buying a round of drinks (laughs) and she wasn't drinking. I didn't pick up on that until somebody said to her, what are you, an alcoholic? And she just looked at them completely like smiling and happy as can be and said, yeah, full blown. And I was like, what? Like who says that? And who goes to a bar when they're an alcoholic, but not drinking? Like I'm so confused. (laughs) But there was something inside of me that knew I desperately needed help. 
and I needed an angel. And I believe that that she was my angel. And God does for us what we so often can't do for ourselves. And the next morning, I tracked her down. I somehow got her phone number. I knew where she worked. I called her at work. She worked at a Saks Fifth Avenue. And I must have had her like paged back in the day somehow. And I got her on the phone and I said, I need help. I need help. Can you help? And she said, absolutely. And we talked and she brought me to meetings and she brought me to meetings drunk because I could not go get the mail sober, let alone walk into a room of sober alcoholics sober, right? Does that make sense? Um, I do want to say this, you guys. I have worked with so many recovering alcoholics. You don't have to take the elevator all the way down. You can be a weekend binge drinker and not drink a drop of alcohol Monday through Friday and be an alcoholic that needs recovery. You can be somebody that can, you know, white knuckle it and go 30 days without drinking and still be an alcoholic that needs recovery. If it's affecting your life and your relationships and your profession and your soul, you might need to seek help. It doesn't have to look like mine. One of the best things I was taught in recovery is to look for the similarities in people's stories, not the differences. And so look for those similarities. Look for the, if you're listening to this and thinking, I don't know if I have a problem, my story isn't this bad. Look for the similarities. Look for the pain points. Look for the stories or the crazy things our alcoholic brains tell us, right? For the longest time, I believed, even in the depths of my alcoholism at the very end, somebody suggested rehab and I was like, are you kidding? Like what? I don't need rehab. Like I thought that was the most asinine, insane thing anyone could ever say to me. Looking back, I absolutely should have gone to rehab. Like there's nobody that, like of of all people, I should have gone to rehab. But I didn't think I was that bad, right? I Some of the things that helped me along the way when I even got sober and I still kept questioning whether I was an alcoholic. I remember my sponsor one time saying, Moira, I don't think that um, normal people wonder all the time if they're an alcoholic. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh my God, you're probably right. The other thing, this sounds so crazy, but you totally will get this if you're an alcoholic and you totally won't if you're not. I remember really being like, you know, I probably was like a couple weeks sober, a month sober and and like arguing with my sponsor. And I was like, but, but this, but that, but I didn't do it this way, but I didn't. And she was like, okay, Moira. She said, how often do you think about like a glass of milk? And I was like, what? She said, how often do you think about a glass of milk? And I was like, well, Like every once in a blue moon, like, you know, if there's cookies on the table, you want a glass of milk. And she said, yeah, that's how most normal people think about alcohol. And I know that sounds extreme, but like most people like, gosh, I I kind of want to have a cocktail tonight. Like that sounds really yummy, right? Like that sounds fun. That sounds good. Like let's have a special treat. She's like, how often are you thinking about it? How often were you thinking about a drink? Well, if you're an alcoholic, you're thinking about a drink. 24 seven. 
you're literally, and again, doesn't have to be 24 seven, but you're certainly thinking about it more than you think about having like a diet Coke or a LaCroix for this day and age, women, especially, how often do you think about having a LaCroix? I want to have a LaCroix probably like maybe once a day, maybe a few times a week, like maybe three nights a week. I'm like, I'm going to go get a sparkling water. That's how normal people think about alcohol. People that have drinking problems think about alcohol a lot more. People with drinking problems think about whether they have drinking problems. Yeah? So let's kind of fast forward this a little bit. I didn't get sober right away. I ended up coming home for Christmas that year. So that was about, I don't know, nine months after I moved to California, eight, seven, eight months And I had had 30 days almost under my belt for the first time in my entire life. That was probably 30 days since I had been age 14. And I was going to meetings every day. I was doing everything I needed to do. I had a sponsor. I was working the steps. I was reading the big book. But I had to go home for Christmas and I had to go back to the bar because people were expecting to see me. And a friend of mine in AA, right before I left, his name was John, he said, Moira, be careful. He said, you hang out in a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. I remember being like, what does that mean? And I I got it. I got it, you know. And uh, I went to the bar that first night and, of course, was handed a thousand drinks. And I said no. And I nursed one beer over like many hours. And (laughs) that's torturous. But that to me also is the equivalent of absolutely not drinking. I mean, when you're used to drinking like dozens of, of drinks, like that's not drinking to me. So I went home that night thinking that I had done it. But the littlest bit of alcohol triggers an insatiable desire in alcoholics for more. It's said to be an allergy, that we have an allergy to alcohol. And once we have a tiny bit, it's a mental and physical reaction that is absolutely uncontrollable by willpower. And I had awakened that after 30 days of sobriety. And the next night I walked into that same bar with those same people with zero expectation of drinking. I was just going to do exactly what I did again. And there wasn't a split second between me and that first drink and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And I got back on an airplane to go to San Diego with just utter defeat and looking in my parents' eyes and they were crushed. They were heartbroken and they knew they had to let me go because they had been really good members of Al-Anon at that point. And I got home to San Diego and I was a shell of a human being because I thought I can't do it. I can't stay sober and I can't keep drinking. And I was caught between what we say is the rock and the hard place. I could not go on any longer drinking. I was killing the people around me, not just myself. And a couple things had happened. Um, I called my girlfriend who 
had helped me, the one with the light and, and the life and the one that worked at Saks. And it was all about me and I was drowning in my misery. And she said, I can't talk to you right now. My brother just committed suicide. And that was a moment. That was a moment. That was a wake up call for me because I knew I was killing myself and putting everyone around me through a living hell. But I couldn't get sober and I couldn't keep drinking. And so when I say that I identify with suicide and why people choose that, I 100% identify with that with the pain being so great that there's no other way out and that it is in your mind in that moment the least selfish act you could ever perform. I know people always say suicide is so selfish, not in the eyes of that person. What I felt like is the best thing I could do for the people that loved me was to just end my life and to end their suffering by ending my life. And a friend showed up on my doorstep from the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, you got to go to a meeting. And I said, I can't. He said, well, you got to pray. And I said, I can't. And I felt like a shell of a human. I didn't feel like there was even a soul in my body. And the only thing going through my head was if I had a gun, I'd kill myself. If I had a gun, I'd kill myself. If I had a gun, I'd kill myself. And I knew my neighbor had a gun. And if I had a gun, I'd kill myself. And how can I get it? But what my friend Devin said to me in that moment was, if you can't pray, then I'm going to pray for you. And he, he made me kneel down and he knelt down beside me and he held my hand. And he prayed for me and he prayed over me. And in that moment, I felt like there was just a crack and God just came in. And somehow he got me to a meeting. And somehow people loved me when I couldn't love myself. And I allowed people to do my thinking for me. I had to completely surrender to what I thought at the time was a life of misery, right? I thought, holy crap, I'm 21 years old and I'm going to be sitting in a rocking chair for like the rest of eternity until the day I die. But this is the only way. And I did what I was told. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. There wasn't a moment that I was awake, that I wasn't surrounded by people in a 12-step program, again, hundreds, thousands of amazing humans that live a freaking really big lives. Like, that's who I was surrounded by. You put, like, a ton of young people together that just got sober off drugs and alcohol that like to live life in the fast lane. They're still finding ways to live in the fast lane. And so I got this incredible gift of sobriety. And this incredible gift of getting sober in Southern California where we went on sailboats on the weekend and concerts and snowboarded and did all this stuff. But sobriety and recovery was at the center of everything. Meetings all the time. 12 steps at the center of our livelihood. Our lives depended on it. 
And it was the greatest gift that I could have ever given myself. And I've grown up with the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've grown up, I operate in my world with those same principles. I still attend meetings today. Um, People ask me a lot of times why, and I'm like, why not? You know, a lot of times I explain to people outside of meetings that you might go to church because it makes you feel really good. It kind of gets your head straight get you on the straight and narrow, get you grounded in what's important. Same thing with meetings, except it's also literally my medicine. There is a, I see people deviate from meetings and drink all the time. I see people relapse. I see people relapse and die. Why would I ever take that chance? Why would I ever not continue to show up for other people that need to know that it works? Right? (sighs) So that's my story. Sobriety has been the biggest gift. And I want to be a voice and a platform for people to come to, to seek help, to seek resources, we do recover. It does not have to be as hard as it is out there. Um, I don't understand why, you know, it's like a spiritual struggle for me. I don't, I don't know why my sister died and I'm still here. I I don't know. I don't, I'm never going to know the answer to that. But I know I turn my life over to God every single day. I know that I keep going to meetings. I, have a spiritual life that is priority and I work really damn hard on myself every single day of the week. And I talk, you know, I think I shared this in a meeting last week. I, I don't keep things in because I believe quote unquote, we are as sick as our secrets. And when there's something inside of you festering and, and, you know, just keeping you kind of twisted in your mind, like it's gonna, it's gonna take you out whether we're talking about sobriety or not. And so we got to talk about things. And, and that's the thing, guys. We're not talking about things. We're not talking about our struggles with addiction. We're not talking about our struggles with mental health. We're not talking about how we all have something and there does not need to be shame attached to it. So will I be a voice for mental health? Will I be a voice for recovery? Will I be a voice for alcoholism and addiction? Hell yes, till the day I die. So (laughs) that went a little bit in a direction that I didn't think it was going to go into. I thought that there was a whole lot of other stuff that I wanted to address, but I guess that's a topic for another day. So guys, Don't hesitate to reach out. Don't hesitate to email me and ask questions. Um, And in general, let's just wrap this bad boy up because I do have to actually hop into a meeting. Make sure that you're following the show on Apple or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Give it five stars. Leave a review. I would love that. Nothing more. But share it. Share this. Share this, especially this episode on social. Be a part of being the voice right? We can all be part of this change. And message me. Let me know your thoughts. I would love to hear them. Thanks, guys. 